Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number 11. And I'll get there in just a little while, but I want to chat with you for just a few moments. There's so many things I'd like to talk about. I, you know, I, I could mention that Bud's parents are here from Maine, and and uh, we, we've got different ones that I could comment on. And there are folks here that are scheduled for surgery that's... Uh, I know Tim Linton's going to have to have a neck surgery, and Mark uh, Mark Wassell, the same thing. And a lot of people that have got things that, you know, that really I would like to take time to talk about, but just not able to do that because of the time factor. Every preacher knows that you can't help people unless you get their attention. But, you know, if we're not, if we're not careful, what we do is getting more concerned about getting their attention and winning their approval than we are about actually ministering to their needs. You know, knowing, you know, a lot of folks really dislike repetition and because of that, preachers are always under pressure to come up, you know, something new, something different and as a as a result of that, sometimes we forget about those that are unsaved. And I suspect that week after week, all across America, there are unsaved people attending church, going in, sit down. They're there for the entirety of the service, and they leave without ever having heard the gospel that is the only message that is able to save them. And let me tell you, I am so very thankful that did not happen in my case. I started attending church out of desperation. I mean, I was a mess, and I knew I needed help. I didn't know what to expect because I, you know, I hadn't been a church goer. Mom and Dad hadn't raised me in church. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew I needed help. But I didn't know what I needed, who I needed. I, I didn't know how it could be provided, but someone suggested church. And so I thought, well, you know, it, it surely can't hurt anything. And so out of desperation, we went to, we went to church. And I might say with a friend's invitation. It's always so important, you know, that we encourage our unsaved friends to attend church. You never know what the result might be. This particular church was a BBF, that's Baptist Bible Fellowship Church, located in Springfield, Missouri, and it was a part of that organization. I have many preacher friends over the years. A part of that, the first church I pastored was a BBF church. But uh, I say that to say this, because of that, of their affiliation with that fellowship, we had a bunch of members uh, that were Bible college students. In fact, the pastor was a recent graduate from the college. He's an old country boy from Kentucky that came to Springfield, graduated from college, and started this little country church outside of Springfield. And so that's where we were attending. Now, I mentioned that. Because if you know anything about Bible college students, they're, they're curious. You know, they're, they want, they're wanting to learn and they want something new, something that is different and, and, and what have you. And, uh, and it's real easy for a preacher to slip into that mode of just saying, well, you know, I know that they'll enjoy this. They'll like this. I think I'll preach on this. 
And uh, I'm glad that the preacher there didn't do that. He got up and, and he just week after week after week preached a plain, simple message related to salvation, which was exactly what I needed. In the first place, I didn't know why I needed to be saved. I did, you know, I understood that I was a bad, bad person. I understood that, but I didn't understand that I had offended God. I didn't have broken His, His laws and was destined for hell. I didn't understand that. And so I'm so glad that, that I happened to go to a church where the pastor, I mean, gave the basics week after week after week, just hammered it home. Now, not everybody appreciated that. On one occasion, when the pastor was gone, we had a fellow that came there and he preached a simple salvation message. So after the service, Bev and I were standing outside. I believe Bev was there with the pastor's wife and people coming by and shaking hands. And so as they were going by, she leaned over to me and whispered, so I don't know what he was thinking preaching that. Do you think he's going to get us all saved again? Really, I wanted to slap her, and I didn't figure that'd go over very good, slapping the preacher's wife. But I thought, good night. That's the kind of preaching that calls me to be saved, and 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 here you are being critical of that. And I'm telling you, folks, sometimes we preachers get so worried about what people are going to think and what they're going to say that we fail to give people what they actually need. Now, I said all of that to say this. There are some messages, some sermons that need to be repeated over and over again. I don't mean necessarily week after week. But it's like the old fellow said, you know, if a, if a message isn't worth repeating, it's not worth preaching in the first place. And I think that's true because there's some subjects, some messages that we need, somebody needs to hear again and again. And if my records are right, it's been six years since I preached the message, the title of which is, What is a Christian? And we're going to revisit that today. So if you'll turn in your Bibles Acts chapter number 11, verse number 26. And when he, that is speaking of Barnabas, who had gone to seek Saul of Tarsus, who had been converted, when he had found him and brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first, in Antioch. Now, the problem is, a lot of folks do not really understand what the word Christian means. And every time I think about this, I think about the little boy that had gone to summer camp. This was the first time he'd ever been to summer camp, and so he comes back home. And uh, the mother asked the little boy, said, were most of the kids there Christians? And he, he kind of scratched his head and thought for a moment. He said, yeah. Some of them were, but, but, but most of them were Cajuns. 
He really didn't have a clue what she was talking about whenever, you know, she asked about Christians. Well, that little boy is not the only one that is confused about what a Christian is. A lot of them are like the woman that told me. I was standing there at her door, knocked on the door, out on visitation, asked her if she's a Christian. She said, well, of course I am. I was born right here in America. Whoa. Uh, you be born on the mountain, but that wouldn't make you a billy goat, would it? No. But but people think like that. Several years ago, some someone I can't remember who it was was taking a survey about you know how you become a Christian, and the one somebody said, "Well, you got to be a good neighbor," and someone else said, "Up the golden stairs." That that was the response, you know. It's amazing what people will say whenever you do one of those man on the street interviews with people, you know. Stick a microphone in front of the face, and what do you what do you think is a Christian? Well, what would you say? What is a Christian? We need to know. We need to get rid of all of this confusion. The word Christian is found only three times in the Bible, and the first time that it's mentioned is right here that we just read in verse number twenty six at Antioch. Now, that's important because Antioch was the trade center of the east, west, north, south. It was called the Queen of the East. The Romans ruled it, but the Greeks dictated the commerce there, and the Jewish synagogue stood among all of the heathen temples in that city. And the important thing about it is anything that was was seen or heard at Antioch would soon be known basically around the world, because everybody sooner or later had contact with somebody that had been to Antioch, and this name Christian was evidently attached to the followers of Christ by the godless people who were were mocking them. I mean, it surely wasn't given by the Jews, because the Jews would never in any way refer to the followers of Christ as being associated with the Messiah, although they rejected Christ, understand they believed firmly that the Messiah was going to come and they would not use a word that that had anything to do associated with the Messiah. So the Jews would not have would have done that. By the way, they 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 commonly call the followers of Jesus Nazarenes. And they did that because there was a stigma attached to that city. And when you heard the, the word Nazarenes, they were talking about Nazareth, out of which they said nothing good could come. So, you know, they called them those Nazarenes. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. This Jesus of Nazareth, who does he think he is? So, so it's certain that they didn't do it. And, and I think it's pretty certain that the Christians, with their attitude of humility that they did not take this name unto themselves. You know, that'd be pretty bold, wouldn't it? By the way, the Lord never referred to them as Christians. There were several other words that that were used to identify the followers of Christ. They were, they were called believers. They were called brethren and so on and so forth. Disciples, which means a learner or an apprentice. And, but here we find at Antioch, first of all, they were called Christians. 
One, one historian wrote of Antioch. He said the idle, witty people of Antioch were famous for inventing nicknames. Evidently, the name Christian was given out of contempt for the followers of Christ. So I don't think there's any doubt about that. But what is a Christian? The word's used three times, and I want you to look at each instance where that word is used in the Bible, and from that, we can understand what it means biblically to be a Christian. First of all, as we see here, they are identified with a person, and they have experienced a change. Identified with the person. That person, of course, is Christ. And they, they have experienced a change in their life because when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there are a lot of changes that take place. Some of those changes are visible and some are not. Some are immediately and some are progressive. For example, when, when a person gets saved, although other people can't see it, our standing before God is changed. It's different. All of a sudden, God accepts us. Amen? All of a sudden, we become a part of God's spiritual family. All of a sudden, our eternal destiny is changed. Now, those are things that happen. We are justified in the sight of God, forgiven by God, and all of those things that could be mentioned that other people can't see. They don't know anything about that, although that change has happened. That change results in other changes, and these other changes are obvious. Because salvation changes our character. It changes our conduct. That's why Paul said, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. We become different. The Lord changes us. You know, it wasn't a terrible thing for me, for my wife, and for my family if that day that I received Christ as my Savior more than 50 years ago, if the Lord said, look, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bring you home to heaven someday, you know, but until then... You're just going to have to keep living in the in the bar rooms. You're just going to keep going to the honky talks. You're just going to have to keep mistreating your family, cheating people, doing all of the bad things. You're just going to have to keep that up because, you know, you just have to wait till you go to heaven for things to change. Man, I'm glad He began to change me. You know, so many people are worried about, well, if I become a Christian, I've got to make all of these changes. No, you don't. You don't make the changes. He changes you. He's the change agent. Amen. He puts within your heart a new desire, a desire to please Him. And not only does He give you the desire, but as Paul said to the Philippians, He said, He works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. He does it through you. And so God began to change me. When these folks at Antioch saw these Christians, they could see there's something different about these people. And they coined this term Christian. Those Christians, they're followers of Christ. They do like he did, you know. What, isn't that a great thought? That the world would see us doing what Jesus did, loving others and forgiving others and helping others and all of the things that He 
He did, look, we ought to be associated with Christ, and others ought to see that in us. Amen? You call yourself a Christian, people ought to be able to see Christ within you. And if they don't see Christ in you, you give them no reason to believe that you're really saved at all. I probably would insult you if somebody said, look, I've just been wondering, are you a Christian? And you said, oh yes, of course I am. And they looked at you and said, I don't believe a word of it. That would insult you, right? But you know, they just might have a good reason for saying that. If you don't give them some evidence because of your character and your manner of life, uh, there's no evidence you've really been saved because when the Lord saves you, He begins to change you. We are identified with a person. That person is Christ, and there is a change that takes place in our life. Now look in Acts chapter number 26, verse 28. This is the second time that we find the word Christian used in the Bible. Verse number 28, And then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So here we find that a Christian is someone that is identified with a persuasion, and he makes a choice. Now let me give you just a little bit of background. We don't have time to look at the whole story, but whenever you think of this, remember, Paul has been arrested. He has appealed because he has a Roman citizenship, and so he's appealed to Caesar. And here we find that he is standing before Agrippa for a hearing before he is sent to Rome. So what does Paul do? He didn't say, look, I've, I've hired the most high-powered lawyer in the land. These are bogus charges brought against me. I'm going to fight it to the very end. He didn't try to defend himself. You know what he did? He took advantage of that opportunity, that hearing, to describe to Agrippa and others what Jesus had done for him. He began to tell about his conversion there on the road to Damascus. And he was so persuasive that, that Agrippa said, Paul, almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. But you see, dear friend, to be almost persuaded is to be altogether lost. That song that we sang so many times and that you've heard down through the years at Billy Graham Crusades in different places was written by the, a man by the name of P.P. P. Bliss. And, and it, he wrote it in 1871 after hearing a sermon and the preacher ended the message by saying, He who is almost persuaded is almost saved and and to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. That's right. You see, it's not like horseshoes where close counts. To be almost persuaded, you're altogether lost. You say, yeah, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. They're a lot worse than I am. You might not be as bad as they are, but you're as bad off as they are. Because if you're lost, you're still going to go to the devil's hell just like everybody else, you see. Amen? Amen. And so here's Paul standing before Agrippa, explaining to him the change that Christ has made. And notice Agrippa is confronted with a choice. 
You see, to be saved, we have to repent and believe. Repent means to change your mind. That results in a change of your life, but it starts with a change in your mind. And as the Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 20, to repent and, and to believe and we'll be saved. When Paul and Silas were in jail there in Philippi, you know the story. At midnight, there was an earthquake that shook the place. The jailer comes running in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say one word about what church are you a member of. They didn't say anything about, well, you need to be baptized. They didn't say, well, you know, you need to be a good neighbor. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Paul said to the Galatians that, For ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it couldn't be more simple than that, folks. Simply believing, that that's the means whereby we receive what God has provided. Well, you say, well, preacher, don't you think baptism and church membership is important? Of course I do. It is important. It's important as something you do after you've been saved in order to show others that you really have been saved. It is important. But that doesn't save you. We're saved, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, that's God's unmerited love. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith. That's easy enough, right? Simply believing, simply receiving. And that's what we see here. The persuasive message of Paul to Agrippa. And Paul says, Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I love what Paul said. He said, I wish you were altogether persuaded. And, 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 and I've got to tell you, week after week after week, you know, you may think I'm brain dead and don't know what's going on. When I sat here and I'm looking out there and my eyes are scanning the building and I see who is there and I know that a lot of times there are folks here that by their own admission have never received Christ as their Savior. I know there are other folks that are here that although they will not admit it, there are folks that depend on something other than faith in Christ for their salvation. And that won't work. And and, and I want to help them. And then I look out there, and Bev and I right now, I'll guarantee you we're thinking about... We're thinking about names of people that we we wish desperately were here because they need this message. They need this desperately. And they're not here. And there just might be someone this morning that is here and you've heard this message again and again. You heard it in Sunday school. It might be that you went to Awana and, and you listened in Awana and you heard the same gospel message And God's been speaking to your heart, and you're almost persuaded, but not altogether. Oh, I wish you would be this morning. Identified with the persuasion, but you have to make a choice. Now look in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is the third and final place that we find in the Bible where the word Christian is used. And it tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. First Peter 4.16, Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. According to this, a Christian is identified with persecution and he accepts the challenge. Let me tell you, we live in a day where a lot of folks have been deceived because they live under the impression that salvation is a cure-all for all of their problems. I'll guarantee you that were you seated at home in your living room before the television set, you can start surfing the channels and you can come across some preachers that believe that, or at least they tell you that's the cure-all. You become a Christian, you can drive a new car and live in a mansion. And Well, by the way, though, you need to support this ministry with your hard-earned Social Security. They'll take every penny some old woman's got, you know, and with the promise that this, you do this and God will do whatever you want Him to do. Which is a bunch of nonsense. Let me tell you, there's a lot of ways, a lot of different ways in which you'll find that you have more problems after you become a Christian than you did before you were a Christian. Now, you'll be a better person. But I want you to know when God saved me, He didn't pay none of my gambling debts. Not one of them. Didn't pay any of our bills. Didn't remove any scars from my body. They were still there. They're still there after all of these years. No, salvation is not a cure-all, but it certainly meets the deepest need in our life. I said earlier that salvation is not the result of doing something for the Lord, but make no mistake about it, Jesus warned His followers that if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to do as I command you to do, you're going to be hated and despised and persecuted. Some of you are even going to be killed. And He told them, unless you're willing to forsake all, you can't be my disciple. So He never enticed people to follow Him under false pretense. From the very get-go, He told them there's going to be a price to pay. It says, The foxes have holes and the little birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay His head. You're going to follow Me. You're going to have it rough. They'll run you out of town, throw you in prison, beat you with the cat of nine tails. Let me tell you, if your only concern in professing to be a Christian is what's in it for me, i got news for you, you'll never be saved. You see, your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. That's more important than anything else. Because until that happens, we are all described as being the enemies of God. We're rebels against God. We have violated His laws. We've broken His rules. We've insulted His holiness. And as a result of that, we're all condemned according to the Bible. Condemned already, the Bible says. And our great need is to be reconciled to God. But that doesn't relieve us from suffering here because the moment we start serving God, we're going to incur the wrath of the world. Paul said all, now get this, the second Timothy three twelve, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
It's going to happen. It might be your classmates, your co-workers, your own family. There will be those who will despise you and ridicule you. In fact, we've got people here right now that's going through that at their place of work. They're mocked. They try to humiliate them. They try to, you know, do anything they can to discourage them. Jesus said that was going to happen. The world is going to hate us, but here's what I want you to to realize that every trial, every difficulty is an opportunity for us. Did you notice that whenever he whenever he was describing this here in First Peter, I want you to notice again exactly what he said. And the last phrase here is the key factor. If any man suffer as a Christian, and you will, let him not be ashamed, but let him what? Glorify God on this behalf. You see, our main concern should not be that life will be easier and better. Our main concern is not to gratify the flesh, but to glorify the Father. That's the most important thing in this world. That's the purpose for which we exist, to glorify God. And the best way to do that is when we accept what God allows without complaint, that we accept it. Lord, I don't understand why You're doing this, why You're allowing this. Lord, you know, I wish it wasn't this way, but... But Lord, in Your divine wisdom and out of the great depths of Your love, You've chosen to allow this to come into my life, and I hereby receive it, and by Your grace I'm not going to complain and murmur about it, but rather I will accept it. And I want to tell you, whenever others see us living our lives with that attitude, it makes an impression on them. And believe you me, there are a lot of folks just like that drunk that staggered in the community Baptist church with his wife and three kids at that time. They know they need something, but they don't really know what they need. And I want to tell you, what they need is the same thing I needed way back then. And that's the salvation that only Jesus Christ can provide. I've often said, you know, if God never did anything but save us, we wouldn't have anything to complain about. But because none of us deserve anything. Every, every good thing we get is a gift from God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not earning our way. So, I close by asking some questions that you need to answer. Have you made the choice to trust Christ? Maybe, you know, you, maybe you attend church, maybe you can quote a lot of Bible verses, but have you really trusted Him to be your Lord and Savior? Is that what you're depending on, or are you depending on something else? Have you made the choice that you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Another question, have you experienced a change in your life? And have you committed yourself to accepting the challenge of glorifying God in whatever your situation is? Have you accepted that challenge? Even if it's persecution? Whenever, look, whenever we are able to answer yes to those three questions, it affects us in three ways. It, it affects our, 
our contentment. And by that, I mean our satisfaction, our assurance, our peace, our fulfillment in life. Without Christ, I've got news for you, regardless of how much you get or what you do or what have, you'll never be happy and satisfied in life. He's the only one that can satisfy you. That's where real contentment comes from. And when you can answer yes to those questions, you'll find real contentment. But not only that, it affects your character. It changes who you are. And it gives you a newfound courage that you've never had before. Boy, I'll tell you, when that day I surrendered to preach, if the Lord said, oh yeah, I I want to make sure I tell you everything that's going to happen, it would have scared the daylights out of me. And in fact, I'm not so sure that I would have said, okay, let's go for it, Lord. If that's what you want, I'm willing. I'm glad we can't see the future. But boy, I'll tell you what, I am so glad that I know who holds the future. Amen. In the biographical section of the recipients of the Nobel Prize, there was a fellow there the name of James Watson. He's the guy that discovered the structure of the DNA molecule. Amazing discovery. But, but in, in, in that section, it has all these different categories, and one of them has to do with religion. And out beside religion in his listing, it says probably Christian. Isn't that a shame? Is, is that what people will say about you? Well, they were probably a Christian. I, I remember when they joined Lakeway Baptist Church and they were probably a Christian. Or, Well, I tell you, we ought to remove all doubt by our manner of life. Used to be an old song. I understand now why God didn't give me the ability to sing because I'd be singing when I ought to be preaching. There was an old song and probably most of you never even heard of. It said, All the world is bright since I got right. Now I sing and I pray and I shout. All my burdens have been lifted since my Savior brought me out. I'll tell the world both far and near as I traveled here below. I'd rather be an old-time Christian than anything I know. And that's exactly the way I feel this morning. I want to tell you what, there's absolutely nothing more wonderful could happen in your life to be an old-time Christian. If you're here and not saved, would you trust Him this morning? You say, preacher, I know you're right and I've been thinking about it, but I've got some questions. Well, you come on and we'll take the Bible and we'll take the time and we'll do whatever is necessary to help you find the answer to those questions. Because believe me, this is the answer book right here. Amen. He's the way, the truth and the life. Will you trust him while we stand together? Father. How we thank you for the exceeding great and precious promises that you've given. To, to think about the great promise of salvation that, that whosoever will may come. 
that if any man will come unto you, that you'll in no wise cast out. And to know that you're willing to forgive us, that you're willing to accept us and save us from a devil's hell. And we're so grateful for that. And so thankful for the salvation that we richly enjoy. But Lord, our heart breaks this morning to think about those that are strangers to Your saving grace. Those that don't know the joy and the peace and the, and the comfort that comes as a result of knowing they're saved. Lord, I pray You'll speak to their heart this morning that You'll draw them to that old rugged cross where they'll trust Christ as their Savior. But we beg it in His dear name. Amen.